I was in Target this uh, recently with my daughter, and we came across some Where's Waldo posters, and she didn't know what it was. And I got to ask her, well, where's Waldo? So I'll let you look for a little bit. Uh, but this is bringing up nostalgia for some, right? Um, where is Waldo? The scene is ever-changing. The one you're looking at right now, for those who are listening later, uh, is a holiday scene at a ski resort, I think. Well, it's, at a, it's at a, on a mountain. Um, but sometimes it's a football stadium. I've seen carnivals, beaches, mazes. Um, but always, always, he is tricky to spot. There are layers and layers of detail that make him so elusive. Landscapes, sometimes there's buildings or animals or um, other people and objects. It's always really colorful. The colors dance all over the page. They dazzle your eyes as the seeker searches. And if you look individually, they're all good, positive, happy uh, images. But on the whole, Waldo is never easy to spot because the image is always overwhelming. It is overwhelming because it is so busy. Did anyone find him? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. This was actually an easier one, not to downplay your, your work and your efforts there. Um, but yeah, where is Waldo? Christmas in our culture can be a lot like a Where's Waldo photograph. The spectacular display of the season, the Christmas music and movies and lights and decor and food and parties and presents and people. It's kind of bewildering. It's also kind of amazing sometimes. On one hand, we're force-fed this commercialized version of joy. And on the other hand, we try our best to care for it, appreciate it, share it with our loved ones. But like those uh, Where's Waldo images, there are just so many layers of hustle and bustle. And it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming because it is so busy. And I wonder, like that elusive Waldo, where is the joy in all of that? I will admit I don't believe it's impossible to find it in there somewhere, concealed though it may be. It is there if we can just kind of grasp onto our perspective and hold it close throughout the season, there can be joy. There's joy in the giving and watching somebody you love light up at your thoughtfulness when you give them a gift. There's joy in holiday food and decor. Uh, I sit with a cup of coffee every morning, a Christmas mug, and I light a candle and I look at the lights on my tree, and I reflect, and I enjoy myself. It's a sacred moment. There's joy to be found in holiday music and in festivities. I'm convinced of it. We have some planned right after this service. But even if we are able to create the capacity within us to maintain a healthy perspective on Christmas, even if we are dedicated to the practice of Advent, even if we are able to peel away at the layers and layers of stuff that ultimately doesn't matter, so that we are able to personally find some real joy amid the hustle and bustle, we must be keenly aware and sensitive to the fact that this time of year is not a time of joy for many people. 
In fact, for the millions of Americans who suffer from holiday depression, uh, which is called actually seasonal affective disorder, classified in the DSM as a type of uh, uh, major depression, this is a dreaded time of year for millions of people, a hopeless time of year. And I wonder, where is the joy in this? You know, I think about so many people, a litany of people, um, recently widowed, uh, the newly divorced, or the parent that is separated by death or distance from their child, or vice versa. Um, I think about deployed troops and their families, or the countless black and brown men funneled through our nation's mass incarceration system and their families. Um, speaking of families, I think about the trans and queer folks who have been rejected by their families. So where is the joy in this? I think about the hungry, the chronically homeless, those sleeping outside or in makeshift shelters this season, the mentally unwell, those who battle addiction or sickness, the grieving, the traumatized. Where's the joy in this? I think about those most vulnerable in our lives, in and around our society, and I think about the macro forces that got us here. At worst, suffering, but even at the very least, overwhelmed and overdone. And I wonder, where is the joy? We sing it's the most wonderful time of year, and yet so many people are engulfed by their circumstances, imprisoned by the forces of busyness and productivity that result in excessive demands, unrealistic expectations, debt, loss, and loneliness. And the thing is, this experience really isn't all that different from the rest of the year. If anything, I think our realities are just exasperated this time of year when holiday demands threaten to undo us. So when I think about it all, that bright, glimmering image of Where's Waldo, that overloaded and busy, though not without sheen and luster image, wanes in light of these very real situations, and the imagery of joy-seeking feels less hopeful because it sure is hard to find joy within a prison surrounded by bars or bound by shackles. In today's reading, which Tiffany read, um, John was imprisoned. John the Baptist, the Gospel of Matthew references him as an Isianic prophecy fulfilled, quote, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Gospel of Luke records John's miraculous conception. His mother, having been barren and old in age, his even existing seemed impossible, yet here he is. He baptizes Jesus, even though he knows, he even says, that it ought to have been the other way around. In this very passage, Jesus describes John by saying, Among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. What we know of John from the Bible, then, is that he was always destined to be important, significant. And yet, in today's text, we see a different side of him, a more human, more relatable side, because in our reading today, the great John the Baptist is just a man in prison. Very likely not well-fed or taken care of, possibly lonely and discouraged, struggling emotionally and physically in ways we can't know, but clearly doubting himself and questioning the identity of Jesus. His faith in what he thought he had known is suddenly less hopeful 
and it sure is hard to find assurance within a cell surrounded by bars bound in shackles. And so, in light of all of this, John is backtracking on what he seemed so sure about only chapters before. The text says that he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? And with every reason to be filled with our own doubts and skepticism, we ask similar questions, especially this time of year, especially from the depths of Advent when our faith questions are, rightfully so, bigger than ever. Um, But this is Advent, and on the church calendar, today is actually known as Gaudete Sunday. If you've been here at all before, you've heard me talk about it, but Gaudete means rejoice in Latin. Um, So this is the Sunday in Advent in which we focus on joy. We've talked about hope. We've talked about peace, now we're talking about joy. So we light uh, the pink candle, the rose-colored candle, and this is supposed to be our reprieve from the penitential purple. See, purple represents penance in the, in the church uh, tradition. And during Advent, similar to Lent, we're meant to actually fast and pray and wait. Um, is everyone doing that this season? Um, We're supposed to be waiting for that ultimate moment, in this case, the nativity of the Lord, when Christ entered the world as the light of the world, giving us finally a reason to rejoice. So, even though we're actually in a penitential season, on Gaudete Sunday, we focus on joy. We rejoice because we have reached the midpoint of Advent, and Christmas is near. Our hope and peace and joy is near. So, even though we take this day to rejoice, we are aware that we are until the nativity, until Christ comes, still surrounded by the depths. So John asks, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? And we ask similar questions too as we struggle to sift through our own circumstances and realities. And you should know Jesus responds, Jesus responds here, But he also responds in a really typical for Jesus kind of way. So he doesn't really answer the question and he's very indirect and he says something totally different than what they thought he was going to say. He doesn't give a straight answer, in other words. Instead, he says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus does not answer as a coming powerful leader or warrior or king or in any way that people would have expected based on the prophecies of the Messiah. Instead, Jesus answers as a healer, as a participant, or as we like to call it, a co-conspirator of peace. Jesus answers as a giver of joy. His response is hopeful and exciting, especially in, in light of what he accomplished on earth in his time. But thinking of his response in light of today, in light of our world, can be challenging. Like, where is Jesus now? What about the people struggling, imprisoned in their own cells of despair now? See, I think, and maybe this is why I like Advent so much, but I think our entire lives are like Advent, and we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Christmas to come, for Christ to be our light, our hope, our joy, all these things promised. And we look around and we just see people everywhere suffering. You know, it makes it hard to have faith. Many of us see all of this suffering from our own cells of imprisonment. 
And the possibility of joy just seems so hidden underneath it all. So we question the notion of Christ. Is he really who he says he is? Where is the joy? And, you know, I think it's with us. You know, I think maybe Teresa of Avila, maybe she was on to something when she said Christ has no body but our own. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, songs like Joy to the World or days like Gaudete Sunday are not for us to remember how on earth to receive joy, but maybe they're more for us to remember to give it, to create it, to be Christ's hands and feet, bringing tidings of comfort and joy to the metaphorically imprisoned, being healers of broken hearts, of loneliness, of grief and physical needs, being healers by being givers of joy. So we notice the people around us, especially um, who need joy in this season. We validate and support the very real feelings and conditions experienced by people this time of year. We allow ourselves to be mindful of the need for joy all around us and where we can extend joy, we do. We give it as our humble offering. In today's text, Jesus says that John is so great that he's more than a prophet. And yet in the same breath, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is still greater than John. And I wonder who are these nameless masses he is referring to, if not us? And what is greatness, if not our everyday postures, the small ways we move in this world? Could our micro responses have macro, which is to say great impacts? See, Jesus didn't let us off the hook in this text for challenge to be like John to be great prophets ourselves who are, yes, like John, prone to cynicism just as much as the next person, but regardless called, called to embody the good news of the Christ way, to share it as wilderness people living in wilderness times just like John did. This is how God is seen and known and experienced, and this is how joy can be known and seen and experienced among us as well. Now, listen, I'm not trying to put more on our shoulders here. The macro forces at play in our time say, consume, 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 do, 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 be busy or face failure, be overextended or face rejection. So when I talk about being a joy giver, I'm not piling on or adding to that. I'm not saying do to the extent of your own depletion or give from an empty, joyless well. I'm saying we can change our paradigms completely. We can get free. We can finally jump off the hamster wheel. We can overcome these macro forces of consume, do, stay busy, and we can do it beginning with joy. Like any good spiritual work, this is both and. It must begin within ourselves. And it will extend to the collective. No one is neglected here. So I'm saying it is actually really urgent that you consistently prioritize your joy, that you listen to it and for it and then honor it, that you become a joy giver toward yourself because this is the path to freedom. 
This is how we can daily divest ourselves from the prisons of unnecessary busyness and overproduction because the only way to know what to let go of, where to pivot, and how to make these shifts is to truly know what gives you joy. So as we run toward joy, we run toward clarity. And as we nourish ourselves with the joy we create, and as we gift it to ourselves, we begin to understand what joy looks like and feels like. We get really familiar with it, and we get used to having it around. And we get better at extending it. We become joy givers, offering joy from the wellspring within us. This is my hope for us. This is my prayer, that we would peel back the layers of hustle and bustle that is crowding our lives this Christmas season and beyond, and that we would do the inner work necessary so that the joy of Christmas, for example, won't just be a tiny glimmer shimmering from deep within all that busyness, but that joy that is brightly exposed for all in our lives to see and to share. May we be joy givers this Christmas and may God provide you with joy givers to refresh your soul, especially if you find yourself on the other side of loneliness or grief or hardship this season. I pray all these things in the name of the prison-freeing, soul-healing, joy-giving Jesus. Amen.